Welcome to A Pint with Shawnee B, coming to you from Chiswick on a lovely sunny, wintry kind of day in London. I have a great guest today, a composer and drummer, a man who has uh, spent uh, three or four decades in the music business, legendary drummer who's worked with Robert Plant and people like that. And he now, uh, I think, exclusively spends his time writing for film, TV commercials, TV programs and stuff like that. Welcoming Chris Blackwell. How are you, sir? All right. Hey, how are you? So you're born and bred in London. Yes, that's London. What was your? Uh, how did how did you get into drumming? Because I'm assuming drumming was your first love, was it? Yeah. Um, we well, where we used to live in in, uh, in Lewisham actually. Our next door neighbour was a drummer, and every Saturday morning he used to practice drums in the kitchen. So from the age of about three, I was used to hearing drums coming through the wall, and he said. Uh, yeah, come around, just bring, bring, since my dad, said, come around, bring your son and watch. So I did, and so, yeah, from about three, I was watching. Was he that irritating neighbour that your parents yeah. kept banging on the wall, oh, yeah. like, turn it down! You could hear it everywhere, it yeah. the street, and um, I thought that was brilliant. But it's one of those things that, like, you hear some kids going, I want a drum kit, I want a drum kit, and the parents are going, absolutely. It's like drum kits and violins. They're like, oh, and some... trumpets. And trumpets, yeah. yeah. My brother was, used to, yeah, oh, God, no. He used, to, he used to practice trumpet, and um, it, it goes through the whole fabric of the house. So you can't really escape it. So yeah. if, you're, if you're downstairs from a drummer, unless you've got concrete floors, forget it. Forget it. It's just literally, it goes, it goes everywhere. Did you have a happy childhood? Yeah, it's brilliant. Lovely memories of just hearing fires and Sunday roast. I don't know why, but that's, that's... And were you... When did the music bug bite, apart from this guy? So he he was like... A, was he a bit of a mentor, or...? Yeah, he never taught me anything, but he actually let me watch, and that's right. what did it, really. So I used to build drum kits at the end of the garden and I put some pounds. Did you really? Yeah. My parents bought me a paper drum kit. had paper heads on it. It was for my fourth birthday, and that lasted about 10 minutes, and I went straight through Straight through it. But then when the guy who lived next door, when he emigrated, he emigrated to South Africa, and it was around about my 11th birthday. So my dad bought the drums from oh. him, and then I came downstairs on my 11th birthday, and there was a drum kit. So that was... That was the Magical moment. Yeah, except you said it up backwards. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't, I don't well, know enough about drums. Drums are meant to be set up a certain way. When you're right-handed, you play them a certain way. My dad was left-handed, and he had no idea how to set a drum kit up, so he set it up. Now, he thought it ought to be yeah. just the opposite way to how it should be. So I learned to play drums left-handed, even though I'm right-handed, which means I play open-handed instead of cross-handed. So it's, it's a weird mixture. And did you take to it immediately then, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And bands, did you get into yeah, bands? Yeah, bands from about 14. And then offshoots from that, and then when I was a bit older, I got a proper job. Doing? I was in local government. I was in the architects department, and I was responsible for the budgets for all the conversions and new builds in the borough, having failed my matter level five times. Holy crap. I was in charge of like a million pound budget. Um, yeah, I lost it for three years and thought, I can't do this. So you, you went straight from like school to working in that yeah, job? Straight, straight from school to working. Gave up drumming altogether. Did you really? Three years, yeah. And was, why was that? Was that someone saying you got to knuckle down and get yourself a paying yeah. pension type yeah, job? My girlfriend I was with at the time was very much, you know, hey, let's get a house and all this. And I was like, yeah, okay. Um, but I knew there was something else I had to do. I didn't know what it was, but I, I just realized I couldn't stay in, in this job for three years yeah. for, for the rest of my life. So I left, and uh, I left with nothing to go to. 
quite brave. Yeah. Um, you're what age are you now? 20, 21? I was 23. Did everyone say you're mad? What yeah, are you doing? Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So I got a, a payment when I left work. I bought a piano and uh, just started doing session work, really. I did actually do one year at college because I failed my, my, I failed my exams at school so many times that I ended up going to college for a year to try and get them again and failed again. Uh, because the main reason I failed was I met a guy there called Winston. Winston Blissett. He's a bass player who now plays with Massive Attack. Wow, okay. And he was just starting to do sessions. And it was a typical thing where one day uh, he was on a session and he phoned me up to that drummer, the drummer's ill. Do you want to come and do the session? And I said, right. Oh, okay, come and do the session. That sounds fun. Turned up, met the producer who was also producing Haircut 100. Got on really well with him and he started getting into those sessions. And then he said, hey, look, Haircut 100, we're looking for a drummer. Do you want to do it? And I said, yeah, it's great. I'll have a go at that. They'd already got someone, but I didn't know. Uh, so I didn't get that, but conversely, about 10 years ago, I met up again with Nick Hayward. Who yeah, yeah. Love Plus One and all yeah, those songs. Yeah. They were great. I yeah, like yeah. it. And then we used to work together and, you know, good mates. And it's, so it's funny how it kind of... Yeah, the connections. Yeah. The, the, before we move on to the music, was the old level thing bugging you that you couldn't quite get? If I had to go four or five times, I'd, I'd start getting almost obsessive about it to try and, to try no. and get it, no? <laughs> no. Yeah. It, was, it was irritating. I was vaguely aware that I needed some qualifications. Yeah. Because I, I, at the time, I wanted to become a BBC cameraman. Mm. I, I wanted to be a BBC sports commentator when I was a kid. And I wrote to the BBC when I was about 13, like a stupid yeah. letter from a guy in Ireland. They wrote me a really nice letter back yeah. from like the head of the BBC. To, <laughs> with like one wink to my dad, you know, oh, who yeah. would be reading it. But yeah, I never quite managed that. But mm. why did you want to be a BBC cameraman? I have no idea. Right. It didn't last long, about six months. Yeah. But, I, no, but anyway, even going to music college, I did ask at school about going to music college, and they said, well, if you do that, you're going to need maths and English A level. I, I was like, why would you need maths and English yeah, to do music? And even and now, if you're employing a musician to do a session, you don't yeah. ask if they're good at maths. Yeah, I know, I know. Why would you do that? And I, I never quite got on with that, and I just couldn't. I got English, but I couldn't get maths. Were you, were you worried, if you're thinking back when, around that time, about the fact that you weren't finding your, you weren't pulled yeah. into the place yet? Well, yes and no. I mean, my parents were brilliant, because I was able to stay at home for until I was 27. I didn't leave that until. So I had that cushion, and I was able to try things and experiment and leave my job and things like that. But no, it, ne it never occurred to me that I wouldn't succeed. I think it was just a single-mindedness, or maybe stubbornness, I have no idea, but it just, it never occurred to me that I wouldn't. So you were, when you were doing these session gigs, you were getting quite a bit of work then, it's right in your mid-twenties, yeah. were you? And that was paying yeah, the bills and all that stuff. Us. Yeah, there were yeah. a bunch of us. Well, we, yeah, the thing is, when you start doing, it's, it's all changed now, so I can't speak for how it is now, but then, I used to go around all the recording studios with a business card, and leave it on the notice board, and just say, look, if you ever do a drummer, it's going to be cool. And that worked? Yeah, and I used to work for nothing. And Presumably they like what they did because they'd always get called back and the next time I'd be paid. Right. So that's how and there were a bunch of us, there was a there was a guitarist, Doug Boyle, keyboard player, Chris Marshall, bass player, Phil Scrag, and invariably we'd all get called in to the same session, so we were like a little unit. And then we formed a band as well, so we were doing gigs. So what was your band called? We were called well, initially we were called the Aerial Beagles and we were quite big in Cheltenham. <laughs> the so, Aerial Beagles. Aerial Beagles, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, so session work became a thing, 
And of course, during the sessions, you'd meet other people in the sessions, you'd meet yeah. other musicians and other producers, which is the main thing. Until, um, and all, it's funny because the things that happened to me have all been a bit like, you would, if you read it in a book, you'd say, no, that's not yeah. how it goes. But like I say, Winston offering me the gig because the, the drummer was it, was it, that's, that's no. Yeah, and I was doing it. I was doing a gig in the area of Beagles. We were doing a gig in um, what would have been then. What's it called? It's called the venue actually in uh, in town. And um, this guy came up to us at the end of it and said to me, "And Doug, the guitarist, he said, do you, do you want to do some sessions for me?'" I said, "Yeah, sounds great." His name was Steve James. I did some work for him. One of the sessions I was on was a keyboard player. He came up to me afterwards and said, look, the band I'm in, the drummer's pulled out. Do you want to do the tour? I said, great. Who's the tour? And he said, it's Toya. Yeah. So that's how it kind of, it was all things like, yeah. This is when Toya Wilcox was the big thing, yeah? Yeah. So what was the glass, what was the name of that big song? Oh, Ancient History. It's Ancient History, yeah. So we're now, what, 81, 82-ish? 82. Yeah, 82, yeah, yeah. What was Toya like? She was very small, very energetic. Um, she was punkish as well. Yeah, she was she? Really yeah. So yeah. It's, again, it's another, it's another sort of angle from what I was doing, just coming into the punk side of things. Yeah. And, um, it was great fun. Very, I learned a lot with her. Um, and that was a, a national tour in the back of a van and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, I went to Europe, did a few things over there. But yeah, it was, it was yeah, back in the back of the van. Yeah. And what was that like for you? Like, was that fun? First tour, it was, it was. Heller is fun and quite scary at the same time. Oh, so I, I had never done a tour before. So right. We did actually have a tour bus, and you learn that you have to sleep a certain way around in the bus, otherwise you bang your head when it jumps to the rails, and you can't use the loo for number two, you know, and yeah, so on, yeah. all these rules and things. And to lock your door at night because people break into your room and trash it. All the things that you meant you need to know, I didn't know any of them. You learn on the road. I did learn on the road. It was very funny. The, the image of the, of those touring dates, you were a rock star then. Were they as drug-filled, sex-filled, booze-filled as the imagination of someone who may have been going to them like me would have been? Yes. <laughs> I can see his face here. It's like, no further questions. <laughs> well, they were if you wanted it to be. That's the thing. Mm. People were there. And always has been. I don't think it is so much now, mm. but it certainly was. And... Um, whether you partook or not, it's up to you. But later in, in touring, you stop every so often and you think, is this really happening? Mm. And the idea is, okay, well, okay. The, the good thing, I mean, with me, was being a session player, essentially. Yeah. So I was drawn in to do a tour or whatever, and then I'd go off and do something else. So I was never really a part of the, the big thing, which meant I was vaguely anonymous. Yeah. Would so, you have liked to have been in a band? No. No. Why? Um, Just what you saw around for, you. For the, yeah, for the, the things I saw that happened to everybody that worked. I mean, really, if some people love it, I wouldn't have liked to have been able to, to not be able to walk down the road yeah. without being the focus of somebody's attention. I, would, I don't know. I wouldn't like that. Mm. I got a little bit of that in America with Robert. Uh, mm. I was with him for six years, so it, it did become more of a pattern. And there were times in the States where you'd be. So we come and talk to um, about your Robert Plant experience mm -hmm. after you play. You're going to share some of your music with us. Yeah. Um, so tell us what track we're going to hear from you. It's a track called Tie Dye on the Highway that I wrote for Robert. 
and he wrote. I know this one. Yeah, he wrote the melody in the top line, and uh, yeah, it's off the album. Tie dye on the highway. Good morning. What we have in mind is breakfast in bed for four hundred thousand.
Okay, so Big Sam there, tell me how you got engaged with this guy, uh, one of the legends of, of rock. You were you were with him, you just said, for six years. I didn't realize it was that long. How, how did it all kick off with that? Because he left Zeppelin, presumably. And... He did, yeah. At 82, Bonzo died, and he did. I said the original Led Zeppelin. Yeah, and he, he started doing solo stuff, of which I was a big fan. It was a fluke, wasn't it? He, really, he just called you up. He probably saw your card. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Again, it was another one of those situations where if you said to someone, this is how it happened, they go, I know, yeah. But actually, what happened was, one of the guys I used to do sessions with a lot was a guy called Phil Johnston, and he was signed to Virgin as a writer. So he used to go into the studios and bring musicians in and record his tracks. Virgin could then put them out to people and see if they were interested. Anyway, Robert heard some of Phil's tracks and said, yeah, I really like this one, that was Heaven Knows, and he might really like this one. But there were a few, you know. And uh, he said, who's the drummer? And Phil said, my friend of mine, Chris Blackburn. He said, oh, get him down. So really? I got home one day, and there was a message on the answer phone. And he said, oh, it's a little plant from New York. Did you think it was some message? Yeah. I was like, yeah. <laughs> so I back and he said, who's this? And he said, all right. And then, come on, really? <laughs> anyway, it was. And he, so he said, come down to uh, this studio. We'll have a chat. And see how it goes. So I went down. And the first thing he did was offer me a cup of tea, which was really nice. Yeah. Lovely guy. He said to me, do you know any bass players? I said, yeah, Phil Skrag, who was one of the sessions. Mm -hmm. So I got him in. Do you know any guitarists? I said, yep, Doug Boyle, another one in the session bass. And I got Doug in. And that was the band. He put it together like that? Yeah, literally like that. What makes a great drummer? Like, like, (laughs) apart from you, but no, you know, like, I mean, People go, oh, Ringo wasn't a good drummer. Like, there was a great quote, which was, Ringo's not even the best drummer yeah. in the Beatles. <laughs> you know, see, the thing is, Ringo, without Ringo and the Beatles, the Beatles wouldn't have sounded like the Beatles. It's like the Stones without Charlie Watts. They yeah. wouldn't have sounded like And Led Zeppelin without Bonzo. I mean, Bonzo's the exception because he was an exceptionally brilliant drummer. Right. Ringo and Charlie Watts, by their own admission, of course, they're not the best drummers. But what they do in the context of the bands they were in, made the band something that it wouldn't have been had they not been in the band. So, so stick with Ringo on that and let me give, give me a feel for what you mean by that. Well, he's not the most technical drummer, but what he does in the context of the Beatles songs, and especially with George Martin when they were, when they were doing that stuff, is remarkable. I mean, you wouldn't think to do that, what he does, because he, some of his feels backwards. And um, I remember reading the other day there's a reason for that, that he's actually left-handed playing a right-handed kid. This sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but, so he spills it backwards. And the way he approaches the hi-hat, it's, it's very swishy. And in the early Beatles film, when you look at him, he sits really, really high on his yeah. stool. And his snare and his hi-hat are really low. Yeah. So he's got this really weird style. So if you put any other drummer in there doing that, it wouldn't have sounded like that. Who do you think are like the best drummers? Like if you had to pick three... Oh, yeah. I mean, sorry to I point out. No well, where does Larry Mullen fit, for example? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like he, he he came from the Arcane Boys band, so he was in a marching band as a drummer. Yeah. And so, he, but I, I, there's a lot of things that he's, he's got a rigidity, which I suppose I can think about. You know, when the edge goes off and his things, it's yeah. just this rigidity going on yeah. in the background that yeah. he holds. Uh, is, I mean, again, he's, you know, within the context of you two, he's yeah, he, he's the glue. If you took each person individually, um, you wouldn't be bowled over. But actually, with the edge, you would, because the edge, I think, has got one of the most recognizable yeah, guitar stars yeah. ever. Yeah. Really. You know, you take Brian May. You can spot Brian May anywhere. 
But with drums, that's not so easy to do. You can't take a drummer out of a band and then go, oh, that's something. I think you probably could have done with John Bonham. You certainly could have done with Buddy Rich. Yeah. But there's very, other, there's very few other drummers where you can actually take them out of the band situation and listen to them blindfold and say, who's that? Mm. And, and say, oh, that's... I, I couldn't do that. Charlie Watts, I could. I'm very much, when you're starting out in music or in anything, any career, really, yeah. you've got to do everything you can. Go, just do anything. Yeah. You never know where it's Don't going. turn anything Don't down. Turn anything down. Yeah. You'd be really upset. When <laughs> I heard a quote from you, like when I was uh, listening to, I think, an interview you did about the fact that you, you actually do live by that. You know? I've backed off a bit now. I mean, for the first 20, 25 years, I was, yeah, full on, doing it. Just never turn anything down. If there's a door, never consider it closed or just open it, go through it, see what's on the other side. Yeah. Don't have a direction, either. that's the other thing, because I'm... What do you mean by that? Well, I never really envisaged I'd be doing what I'm doing now. Right. It wasn't a plan. I always knew I'd be a drummer, but I didn't think I'd be a composer. That was never really in the picture. But that only happened because I just, because of other circumstances. Did you always know something would turn up, though? Yeah, well, I always thought something good. I never, it never occurred to me it wouldn't, which is not a really good way to run your life, really. No, I know. <laughs> it's not scary. It's, it's, it's not as scary as you think it might be. Is that fair? Well, I've found that I'm doing that a lot now with tracks that I've written because they go into a publisher, they get rented over a period. And I've started to think in terms of, okay, well, that track isn't really going to start earning anything for another year or two. And it'll hit its peak in about five or six years, by which time I'll be, you know, blah, blah. Yeah. I've started doing that a lot, so I'm not really going to see any major money from this particular track until I'm this age. Okay. I never used to do that. So, That's interesting. Yeah, so perhaps, yeah. Perhaps so these are the sort of, a lot of this stuff is the sort of music you put to the goal of the season and match of the day, yeah? Or, or whatever, you know, the, yeah. day, the, the really just upbeat kind yeah. of, yeah, stuff like that, yeah. <laughs> so that's mainly, we're probably jumping the gun here with the composing, but that's the sort of composing, this license, license uh, material that you yeah. can get money Whereas for. Whereas before, because at the end of the plant thing, as I said, I started off as just, just, I started off as the drummer. So that was um, now and then. Right, which is probably one of his best, right? Yeah, I was, I was sort of the solo on that. The next album, Manic Nirvana, uh, I actually wrote other stuff for. Right. So I was more involved as a writer and a drummer. So clearly what happened was you, you, you gathered this gang of this motley crew because he wanted to tour. You went off touring. Yeah. Now and Zen got made. Or oh, you were touring Now and Zen. It was already yeah, done, we, right? We, we got into the studio and wrote Now and Zen. Then we recorded it. Then we toured it. Right. Then we came back and then we got into the studio. We actually went to Robert's house for the second one. Wrote it, recorded Man of Art, then went off and toured. But was the first tour like a big, like that was a world tour, was it? Yeah. Because it was kind of a big punt for him probably to bring, I suppose you knew the other guys, right? So there was a kind of a bonding. But was he, what what do you think he was looking for? Was he looking for personality as well and people who are not dickheads and all this kind of stuff? Or how does it, or was it pure talent? He was surrounded by a lot of dickheads. So Mm. possibly, yes. Mm. Um, I think when you get to that level, there are a lot of sick fans yeah. who just say yes. I've been in situations with him where he pushes conversations as far as he thinks he can go before someone says, hang on a minute, no, that's bollocks. He's he testing did, someone. And no one ever did. Oh my God. So we'd always say, this <laughs> Yeah. So he, I think he liked that element of mm. someone going, no, 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 you're, you're talking rubbish. Uh, but he, you, you could always see him doing it to be a glint in his eye and yeah. off we go. 
No one would actually see him. So what was that first tour like for you? Because, you know, you, you talked about the Toy Wilcox tour and stuff like that, but this is big style now, right? You're, you're really different. Yeah, because I've done a tour before that with Bucks Fizz. Which is, <laughs> Did you? Yeah, completely nice. Post Eurovision win, <laughs> making yeah, your mind up. <laughs> this was 86. Yeah. That was chalk and cheese. I mean, you couldn't get any different, really. Uh, it was really polite. The plant thing was we had our own plane. How cool. Learjet. So it wasn't a Learjet. No. Cessna. It was a Viscount. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All oh, right. It was getting propellers. So, yeah, propellers, and it was getting so old that every year they knocked a thousand feet off its ceiling because of the age of the plane. <laughs> That's and not as glamorous as yeah, it sounds. No, it was lovely, but yeah. you know, it, it, the, the benefits were that you didn't ever have to queue at airports. And yeah, you yeah. just drove onto the tarmac onto the plane. Like the Beatles. Yes. <laughs> and, and you know, you, you get off the plane, the stewardess would always say, "So, what do you want for dinner tonight?" And we we tell her, that, you know, "Would it be?" Kentucky Fried Chicken or yeah, Steps. They'd have it. Get back to the plane, there it was, or they'd have it, so we, you know, we flew to the next one. And that was the benefits. The downsides were, like I said, a thousand feet a year. <laughs> I remember flying over Texas in the plane one time, we had Joe Elliott from Death Lab, but he used yeah. to hang out with us quite a bit, and he was in the back. And because there was a big storm, and you could see the storm, and we, we couldn't fly over it because we weren't allowed to, so we either had to go around it, which would make us late, or go through it, so we had to go through it. E. We went through the storm. And I've never seen anyone be so sick in the back of the room. He had a bucket and everything. And I was very aware that it was definitely the singer throwing up. Was it very luxurious in the plane though? Yeah. 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 Were there many rounds? Is it like tension or is it, were you all pretty cool and relaxed? We were all pretty cool and relaxed. That's right. Um, so was it all we 100 miles an hour? And we were perceived to be, well I was 30, 31. Yeah, so Robert's a bit older. Yeah. We were perceived to be young because that was part of the thing, Robert, he wanted a fresh young band mm. to just reboot it. We looked younger than we were, so... Mm. No, we all got on really well. Uh, there were a few fights, obviously. Mm. I remember one vividly in the back of the work. For some reason, we were, going, we were doing Birmingham, and for some reason, we were in the back of the transit van. I have no idea. We never travelled in transit van, but we were <laughs> in the back of the transit van with Roger Daltrey. And I was having a blazing round with Phil, the keyboard player. And again, I never had blazing yeah, you know, you seem very placid. Yeah, yeah. It was a real full-on yelling row. While everyone was looking on. In the back of a transit van with no seats, we all sat on the floor with Roger Daltrey in the back and Roger <laughs> Clark. And Roger, I remember Roger turned to uh, Robert and said, oh, this sounds very familiar. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't remember what the argument was about. Yeah, but we very rarely, yeah. very rarely argued. We had a very nice time. The gigs were hilarious fun. Just watch Spinal Tap, the movie, and yeah. have a rough idea of what was going on. So you got back from this big tour and there was presumably a rider that said, we'll see what happens after the tour. And then yeah. he said, right, we're going to keep you all together. And then you, you then started writing with them. Yes, because I learned very quickly from the first album, Now and Zen, that Phil was bringing songs in, complete songs, and there were other writers being pitched from other publishers. Um, and if we were ever going to get any writing credits mm. on the album, Mm. To write stuff. Being a drummer, you've got nothing to write on. And you're always kind of stuck sat at the back to keeping the time while other people are coming up with ideas and you're just playing, you know, 4 4 or whatever. And I, I very quickly learned that I wasn't going to get very far doing that. So I initially started bringing the keyboard in, a keyboard in and just putting it beside the kit. I worked out that the best way of doing it was to actually write a song at home 
and bring that in and play it. See, what do you think? And he'd either say, that's rubbish, we know it's great. And if he liked it, then he'd write the melody in the top line. And that's how I got my stuff in. Because it wasn't going to happen in rehearsal. It just wasn't going to happen. And how often did you bring in something you thought was brilliant and you said, that's shit? Oh, quite a lot. Right. I'd say it was a 50 50. Any chances where you brought in something that you thought was quite shit and you thought it was great? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. Isn't it funny? Yeah. yeah. But that's the same. I mean, I've noticed that when I used to do a lot of TV ads. It's the mm. same thing. Of course. Yeah. yeah. You, can, you can never tell. I mean, they do say the more creative a thing is, the more people like it and don't like it. So at least it's causing someone to, you know, oh, I suppose the worst thing is, oh, that's quite nice. Yes, yeah, <laughs> no, that's, you don't want that. No. Yeah, I mean, it's the same as you come off stage some nights and think that was the best gig you ever played. Mm. What yeah. was the best gig you ever played? Uh, uh, Madison Square Garden. Of course. So Madison Square, first time we played there, and I remember sitting on the stage, middle of the first couple of songs written, and thinking now, oddly enough, where we're sitting now, this pirate house, yeah, inches it used to be Fubert's, right, which was owned by an Italian lady called Maria, who's still around the corner, but she owned this whole right. Thing. And I used to sit outside here all the time, Fubert's, drinking coffee and meeting people. My first thought at Madison Square Garden was, I wonder what's happening at Fubert's. It's a really weird. Was that a way of just? Keep yeah, you I think calm. It just, I think it calmed me down <laughs> yeah. and, and sort of just rooted me again. And because you know you're at Madison Square Garden with Robert Plant. Yeah, I'm trying to get. You're 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 quite a um, humble person, yeah. but like I, you come across as that. But like, we're well, not going. Holy fuck! Here yeah. I am. I've arrived. Yeah. yeah. As I said, my 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 thought was, what was happening? <laughs> and uh, that what was your worst gig? Worst gig was in Florence in Italy, right. where we, it was, a, it, was, it was a beautiful place, absolutely gorgeous um, theatre we were playing. And the support act had been on and gone, and we came on. And so before we came on stage, there was this whole bit where they would dim the lights, so everything would go black, and they put our intro music on to build up the atmosphere. Mm. The crowd had this whole expectation. We creep on stage in the dark, so mm. creep on torch. I got behind the kit, Charlie's on the bass, and Doug's over this, and Robert was backstage. And then the music would stop, and then the lights would come up, and we'd start. Yeah. The lights came up, and we started. After about 30 seconds, all the power went off. So, and the house lights came up. <laughs> and we just sat there, and we're like, oh, so we just had to kind of creep off the stage. <laughs> and uh, it turned out the Italians, for whatever reason, had plugged all of the back line, all the amps, and everything, and all the lighting rig into this huge socket thing that went to one plug. One plug. Yeah. So they blew up <laughs> the, the Florence plug. generator, yeah. Yeah. So and Gig cancelled. No. No you got they, it. Um, you just reminded me of another worst gig actually. But <laughs> they, uh, no, they um no, they, they fixed it, changed the fuse or whatever. Yeah. I don't know what they did. They flicked the switch, yeah. And then we came back and did it again. But yeah, it was the fact that we come on to this big, you know, grandiose pompous, that must have been funny off stage there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the <laughs> and the creep off the stage my other worst gig was when I broke my wrist just before going on stage in Oklahoma. Uh, we had Joan Jett as a support act, and I, I was to go out and watch support. So I'd go out to the lighting desk. Look at that, Joan Jett, the support act. Well, <laughs> I know, she was happy you were. So I'd go and watch, and she was, you know, and I literally just watched her. I went backstage again to change. I had my. my Platforms. Boots. No, no, I used, to, I used to wear. Um, uh, what they called uh, baseball boots, and jeans on. Converse. And I used to go into Converse. 
I used to go into the shower rooms backstage because they were mainly um, ice skating arenas, uh, baseball arenas mm-hmm. and stuff. So the, the, the shower rooms were quite big. Yeah. So I'd, about this, about this, yeah. so I'd go in there with a football and just belt the football at the water to warm up. And um, I'd been doing it for months. And then this one time I went in and kicked the ball at the wall and I slipped because there must have been soap on the floor. Yeah. And totally broke my Shit. left wrist. 10 minutes before going on stage. 15,000 people. I remember. Well, you didn't know it was broken, or you did? It, it looked cracked. Right. <laughs> it, okay, it then. Around, right, yeah, yeah. It was kind of an S shape. It didn't look right. And we had, a, we had an osteopath on tour, and he wasn't really a qualified one. He was, he was like a, he was one of the, he was one of the backstage guys, and uh, but he messed around with osteopathy, and he came out and he said, "Oh, I'll fix that." And I was like, "I really don't think that's fixable." And Robert came over and just, "No, don't stop." And Robert was running my arm under the tap and everything, and they called him. Uh, an ambulance, a squad car, black and white squad, squad car turned up in Oklahoma. And I remember sitting in the squad car with my no top on, with my wrist on a, on a cushion, and this guy drove me to the local hospital in Oklahoma. And uh, getting into the hospital with one of our minders who had to fill in all the paperwork for me. As the time was ticking. As the time was ticking, and then all these, the, the gig was cancelled, obviously. And, okay. then, and all these people were turning up at the hospital. There were like 500 people at the hospital. There was a mini riot going on at the back of the gig. And, and, uh, Sending love or hate? At the hospital, love, actually. Okay, good, yeah. At yeah, yeah, yeah. the gig, they were a bit frustrated because yeah, they were just gearing up for it in 10 minutes before. Like, yeah. yeah. And I remember you probably could have gone to the crowd. <laughs> have you any drummers? Yeah, drummers. I have a drummer story for you. I have a drummer story for you. Um, in... Uh, well, I'll finish that one. Go on. Well, yeah, just, you know, they probably all the paperwork and everything, and then I remember counting backwards from 10, 9, I got to 8, and that was it. And I woke up with all these tubes and pipes and wires coming out of me, and, uh, and yeah, completely broken in a cast and the whole bit. I had two pins in it. Um, Shit. Hey, it was a, it was a, and you're out for weeks, right? I ended up doing uh, percussion and backing vocals. They got another drummer in to uh, okay. So we were off the road for three weeks. What um, about the, the rumors? Probably not rumors, but the, the, all these, like the Rolling Stones, they all, they've all got hidden musicians on tour with them under. I don't know about Stan Stones, but yeah, a lot of them do. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't possibly say who. Yeah, well, so, I, I just Googled it and it's there, I think. Yeah, it's there, and it does happen. And if you, were, if you are lucky enough to get backstage passes to any of these shows, you'll see them. They're either under the stage or side mm. stage or behind the amps. Well, what's the idea there? Just to give it a bigger sound or no, it's someone's not feeling very well? It's to, well, it's to cover up people's, you know, their voices. Lip syncing goes on sometimes as yeah. well. Yeah yeah, 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 The one person I was really surprised that didn't happen was Kylie. Yeah, I've heard that. Because yeah. our, sign, our sound guy, again, for whatever reason, he was Peter Gabriel and Elton John and Robert Plummer and Kylie. Why Kylie came into it? And he said, You've got to come see Kylie. I said, okay, I'll come see Kylie. Fully expecting it to be lip synced. Yeah. And, um, and there was a rehearsal, and he said, Oh, and he saw it. He said, No, there she is. It's not. That's her. Yeah. It was brilliant. Pretty impressive. Right? Give us your second song, or a piece of music, second or whatever you want to put in. Is, yeah, it's a track I wrote ooh, four or five years ago. Now it's a track called Elation. This is Elation.
Okay, so I have a I have a drummer story for you, Chris. Um, I have only played the drums once in my life, but it was at the Montreux Jazz Festival. Was it? Yes, <laughs> and we were. Uh, I was doing some work for Nestle. We were wandering down through Montreux on a Sunday evening. There was this bar, and the bar was empty, and there was a there they had video screens outside the bar, obviously for when it's full to try and get people in. And I was with some guy from um, either Status Quo, I think some guy who used to be a guitarist at Status Quo, my mate who was a bass guitarist, my client, and some other guy and they said let's go in and play and there was about 12 people and I said I'll take the drum so I get stuck behind the drum and I've never I mean everyone I think you know when, when you're dancing you think you can play the drums and I said I'm not going to be and I'm in behind this drum kit and there's only the bar is empty but it's a huge bar and we start playing and after about 20 minutes the bar is full with people like like well, when I say full, like about 200 people. Yeah. And like, they're looking at me going like, and I'm just, I have no, I mean, I'm, I'm like, dump, dump. And he's just going, just go with it. Like you pretend it's like, you're, and, I'm, and I'm making an absolute biases. And I'm like, you got to get me out of here. And I'm kind of stuck. And then David Spillane goes, uh, my client, he goes, do, uh, our drummer's feeling a bit tired. Do we have a drummer? <laughs> and like 20 hands shoot up. Like, you're really good. Just get the fucking drummer out from behind the drum kit. So, so I, I skulk off. And then a drummer comes on who's fucking brilliant. And then, and then this, this big dude, this big black dude comes on stage and he goes, can I play, can I play bass? And so my, my client gives him the bass guitar. And he, he was the lead, I don't know his name, the lead bass guitarist from Miami Sound Machine. And he was, he was playing, or the lead, he was a bass guitarist. He played lead bass guitar, which was just stunning, you know? And I was sitting there in the back and everything. <laughs> That's my one and only drummer. Oh, that, the similar thing, yeah. There was, where, where I used to live in Lewisham and stuff, and there was a college, Goldsmiths College over the back of my parents' house. And then, uh, um, this must have been 1969, something like that. There was a festival going on in the grounds at the back. And so I managed to, I don't know how, but I managed to blow my way in with all these students. Mm. Uh, and my dad, we were sat there watching this. And suddenly there was nothing happening. And, and somebody came up to the mic and said, um, are there any drummers? And my dad put his hand up and pointed at me. I was 11. So I went, up onto the stage. And you, you delivered it? Blank, yeah, for about 15 minutes. I don't know who it was. I think it might have been Man for Man. <laughs> well done. No idea, but it was bizarre. And Did they go, give it up for our 11 year old drummer? And he was like, you. I went for the next two days. The festival was almost three days. I went for the next two days wearing exactly the same clothes in case anybody recognised me. <laughs> Which is odd because later on, as I said, I didn't want to be recognised. Yes. It's a real. Strange. I might have been the start of that. Yeah, because <laughs> no one did. No one did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're we're into. Um, you did six years with Robert Plant. Tell me, is, is there anything that I haven't asked you about that that needs to come out now? You need to tell me. Not really. Confession. How, well, how did no no how did it no no I didn't mean like that. I mean, how did it stop? Uh, it stopped very suddenly. We did say uh, now and then was the first album. Manic Nirvana, I started to write for that one. Mm. We came off tour with Manic Nirvana and we started writing and rehearsing for Fate of Nations, which is the next one. And um, hence, I've got lots of tracks on that album, but I'm not on it. Because what happened was really weird. Robert, every five years, he just finds everyone and gets a new band. I don't know why, but he just does. And, but nobody told me. So, oh, God. 
I turned up at Rack Studios one day and uh, there was another drummer. Oh, God. And I was like, oh, hello. And they were doing my track. And that was kind of it. it, it there wasn't a goodbye or, a, or anything. It was just, they were trying other people. Now, were you, was your contract up or something? Or? I didn't have a contract. It was a verbal thing. So and the same for your mates and the bass and the... Dougie, guitar, yeah, same. And it was worse with Dougie because we, I remember we were writing and rehearsing at studios in Wales. And I had to come back to town because I was start, just starting to get TV commercial stuff coming. And I had to come back to London and I said to Robert, look, I, I just need three or four days. He said, yeah, went back. When I came back to the studio, they'd recorded a whole bunch of songs with another drummer. And I don't know whether they were trying to say to me, look, we don't really need you or what, but it was kind of very much stated that you should be around. The other thing that was weird... That you should be around. I should be around, because otherwise this would happen. And Doug, the guitarist, there was a different guitarist. When I turned, when I came back, yeah. there was a different guitarist. There. Yeah. And I was told, look, don't tell Doug. Oh, and I spoke to Doug all the time. Yeah. And I said, well, And this is quite sudden, right? Because you've been all pals and all, yeah. It was really, really very strange. And to have tracks that I was really very proud of being played by other people, if they'd said, we want to try different people with different people, that's cool. But to just do it without telling you was really weird. And to turn up in the studio and not be told that there's someone else there in your shoes wasn't brilliant. Um, And then I was made, there was was another session where I was made to feel that my drumming wasn't up to what I was meant to be doing. I was told that you know my timing was all over the place and all that. This is by Robert. No, this was by the producer. Producer. No, I know. Fuck off. So did you manage to get to Robert on this? No. Uh, I or was did. he avoiding you or what? He, he was. He was being very Robert and just kind of disappearing. And, yeah. And um, no, I didn't. I didn't ever really got to the bottom of it. But it, 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 you know, and I spoke to other people. I spoke to Phil Collins. I spoke to other drummers that worked with him. And yeah, he does. Every four or five years, he just like leave. Pushes everybody off and then gets a new band. And if you look back through his career, it's always happened. But there wasn't so much as a buy you or leave, no. as they say in Monty Python, no. and you're just gone. Just gone. That must have been devastating. It was a bit. Yeah. Uh, it was a bit like getting a divorce and not realizing it. The rug pulled from yeah, under you. It was yeah. a Dear John letter. It was, it was all yeah. about, you know, without the letter, actually. Yeah, without, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was very, very odd. It kind of left me going, well, thank goodness I'm doing something else as well, because I didn't jump ship completely from But there must have been these months they're going, oh, they're, they're calling me back, or they want... And your other yeah. friends were in the same hole, and... Yeah, we were all in the same boat. Doug was ditched. Um, Phil, the keyboard player, was still in there. But everybody... Oh, Charlie Jones, because Charlie... Charlie married Robert's daughter, so... You can't really fire him, then, yeah. Well, it was tricky for Charlie, because... Charlie's a pretty good mate, and... and I, I, I can't speak to Charlie, but I suspect there was an element of outcome. I'm still here, and outcome feels good. Yeah. Do art, and it, anyway, they went off and they did a tour, and it was it was great. The album did well, but it's just the, the stuff that we had, or I I had in my head that I was going to be writing for him was much more. It was kind of going back to Zeppelin a bit more yeah. than they ended up doing. And, and Robert stuff is very esoteric, and, it, and I, I know that he always wanted to be very esoteric. He always wanted to do that sort of thing, and it's great. And that's what he's doing. So and you, you must have had to have some meeting or phone call, or you left your charger, or you know, there must have been some. No, it was that just no. since. 
I see him every so often, and he's lovely. Uh, I just don't think he pretends very, it never happened. Yeah, I right. just don't think he's very. He's always had other people to do that for him. Yeah. So I don't think he's very good at that kind of, you know, relationship with with other musicians thing. And and very much he's on a path to, of exploration, and he's still doing it. He's still yeah. exploring. But you're leaving other people in your wake as you do that. Yeah. And um, you can take it one of two ways. You can either go. Oh, it's kind of creme shit. brulee esque. Yeah. Shit business. Yeah. 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 It's, it's not nice. And I knew, I knew it was a crap business. And I, you know, I was yeah. used to rejection and so on. So it wasn't really, it wasn't as big a deal as it could have been. But as I said. The contrast, say, the way you two treated um, Adam Clayton. But like, he went through that mental rocky phase in the late 90s, early 2000s, mm. where he was just off the rails. But like, they're family and they just <laughs> come right in and sort there's of help. There's, there's, two, there's a couple of that. Coldplay and you two. Mm. Who. As far as I'm aware, whenever they write a track, everybody, it's an equal share. And that's the manager the in U2's case, Paul McGuinness, yeah. That's the way to do it. Because everyone's happy, everyone's friendly, there's no... I remember being in meetings when we were recording stuff and, you know, and I'd written, I'd written a thing. So the way it works, you write a song, that's 100%. If the singer writes the lyrics and the melody, that's 50%. So straight away, you know, mm. you're down to 50%. If someone else writes a chord, doesn't come out of the singers 50% it comes out of your yeah so five percent is three and i remember arguments uh, i wrote that bit that yeah. three and a half percent it gets really stupid why not if there's five of you just mm. go okay 20 percent especially in a writing situation if you're in a room with a bunch of people writing and you're the drummer and you're very aware that you're not going to get anything for this yeah. everybody else is going to benefit from yeah. it apart from you there is an element of we'll just use a drum machine what am i doing yeah exactly waste of time to me, when the band split again, when you're in a, re- a rehearsal situation, other people are, and you're there for other people to bang ideas around, and you're just sat there as a timekeeper, mm. and then at the end of that, you're told, well, "No, sorry, we're using someone else." You've wasted a year of that. I don't. I've never understood that. I've always thought if I had a band, it would be straight away. It's four of you. Okay, twenty-five percent. Mm. Okay, we're, we're in the room. We're all doing the same thing. Why shouldn't you all be the same? Otherwise, you just get someone making a fortune. Bitterness creeps in. Like, oh, yeah, a band is hard enough to keep it going anyway without there being any kind of sense of bitterness, acrimony, or you know, look at him or whatever. Um, so how long did it take you to pick yourself up from that? That must have been a blow. Uh, well, I stopped drumming. Yeah. And that was it. That, that was 1992. Really? Not really done anything since. But I stepped sideways into the composing thing because I was mm. already writing for Robert, which opened a lot of doors. Um, away from music, what's your view on the world that you live in at the moment? Uh, are you upbeat, downbeat? Um, I'm pretty upbeat about most things, but I find it difficult to think oh. <laughs> nice things about Donald Trump uh, and Brexit. Mm. And, yeah, you have a couple of kids mm-hmm. coming along, so do you worry about the future for them? Or? Jake wants to be a drummer. Okay, so that's deeply I'm worrying, terrified. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jackie, for listening. <laughs> and Oli, at the moment, wants to be a footballer or a rugby player. Okay. So that could be fine. I that'd be right. I'm being forced to watch X Factor at the moment. It's a family thing, you know. Yeah. yeah. There it is. My flatmate's mad into what he spends. He, he watches reruns. And then you go, why? <laughs> why do you do he that? loves it. It's his favorite show. Though. Hello, Evan, if you're listening. But he's still auto tuning on it. I know, I know, I know. Simon Cowell has a lot to answer for, you know that? He does, but he's a very clever guy. I know. He's, he's playing the game. Yeah. You know that it's all 
preordained. You know that they already know who's going to win. Mm. You know that all the acts on there have been plucked out. Of, you know, the thousands of people you see queuing up for mm. it, that's not really. Of course, yeah. At all. That's, there's not really thousands, it's the bloke. Window it's, dressing. Yeah, it's the bloke or the girl who's singing with their family and their mates, so they're ten of them straight away. And they, they pick the people who can't sing, because that makes good television. Yeah. And then they pick the people that they know are going to be in with the chance. Yeah. And they already know who's going to win it. And to me, it's like, why are we watching this? Because yeah. it's like a scripted... But it's almost like that's the that those shows, talent and X Factor, that, that they're the only way to get a big break almost in music now. Yeah, the, yeah, they you are. Know? But then you see, that's the other thing I dislike about it is that there's this whole kind of culture of um, uh, everybody wants everything now. Mm. That's what's happened to music in downloads, for instance. So you download a piece of music like now. I can go on my Kindle now and download mm. the book. Yeah. I don't have to go to the shop. I don't have to wait for it. I don't have to ask for it for Christmas. It's yeah. here. And so the music albums have died because you can cherry pick. So you've got everything is instant. And that's filtered through to the music. There's this misconception that you, know, you win X Factor. You're famous, you've got a million pounds. We know you don't. What's that million pounds? You've got to pay for all your recording costs, all your hotel bills, yeah. your limos, all of that crap, you know, videos. Yeah. You're paying for that. I didn't know that. Out of your prize money. Yeah, at the end of it, you've got to pay that. You still owe them a million, it's, it's in the past. It's like so, a book, it's like, yeah. Yeah, so there's this concept, the misconception that you, you're suddenly famous. It's usually the person that doesn't win that becomes famous. Yeah. But to me, unless you're traveling in the transit van, and unless you're sleeping on pub floors because you can't afford the hotel, and unless you're paying to pay at a gig because what you got paid wasn't enough to cover the price of the PA, you haven't earned that. It's like going to university. Apprenticeship. Yeah, it's like you're studying, you're learning all that stuff. So when you do get there, you're not taking it for granted. You're enjoying it. It's the 10,000 hours. I mean, it's like the Beatles in Hamburg. Yeah, it is the 10,000 hours, exactly. And Beatles in Hamburg, which like when they went over there, that's what they were doing. They were sleeping and they were playing fucking 15 or something yeah. hours a day. Yeah. But they came back tired as fuck. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there isn't any of that. No. And, giving and also kids... Kids these days, but yeah. like you know, they, they 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 would just scoff at that. Fuck that! If yeah. I'm if I'm if I'm going to Hamburg, I'm playing for two hours every night, and I'm having my own hotel, and I'm yeah, expecting yeah. you know, there's none of that kind of. Yeah. No, you're not because you're they, crap. And they complain about the hotel. You know, this is yeah. the thing. Unless you've earned your right to do that, you don't appreciate it. So the people that you write people get to that situation immediately, mm. and they're already complaining about stuff. Yeah. Well, why are you complaining? You could yeah. be working in Tesco. And you will be again soon, you, you know why? Green, yes. Shit business. <laughs> and that's, uh, and shit business and that's the other thing I really don't like is celebrity. I can't yeah. stand the yeah. cult of celebrity. People just want to be famous for mm. the sake of being famous. Why would you want to do that? Thank you for being on my show. Uh, I really enjoyed that chat and I'd like you to play us out with something a little bit up because we went a little bit down there towards the end. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'd say, I'd suggest perhaps not something with rubber plants. Okay, yeah. Um, all right, well, here's a, an orchestral thing I did recently. Um, it's a track called Archangels. Anything you want to add to that? Well, it was recorded at Abbey Road, full orchestra, full choir, and that's, again, that's a fabulous experience just to get into Abbey Road. What was it like being in Abbey Road? That's amazing. Yeah? Um, Can you feel the ghosts? Yeah. Of Yoko yeah. as well? Yeah, <laughs> it's incredible. It's I mean I, I've, wor I've worked there lots of times as a session player. Yeah. You can actually work there as a composer when you're very much a cog in the machine. There's, there's an orchestrator, a notator, 
there's a producer, there's an engineer at the desk, and there's a conductor. You all just sat at the back going, oh, that sounds nice. Brilliant. It's amazing. But yeah, Archangels. Thank you so much, and the best of luck in your future. Thank you very much.